Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. All right. Uh, Today on the show, uh, as you get ready for Election Day here in the 2018 midterms, we thought we would inject a note of terror. Not terror. I'm just that's that's an overstatement. Uh, We thought we'd inject a note of concern. And I should say before we say anything else, I mean, you should vote. (laughs) You should vote on Election Day, provided you, you know, have some grasp of what's happening. Uh, You should absolutely vote. Nothing that we're going to say here on this show is any reason why you should be apathetic about voting. You should absolutely go and vote. Uh, I should say also, I mean, as far as we know, the election uh, process in Connecticut is is intact and intelligently and securely run. Uh, as we will uh, explain, it may not be perfect, but um, but you should vote and you should vote with the belief that your vote will be counted. And then, you know, until you hear different, I guess. So um, we are going to talk about cybersecurity uh, as it affects the electoral process uh, here in this country. Um, I should say also that as we go along here, if you have um, questions, well, I, I'm going to sort of open up the phone lines a little bit later. Or I'm going to say that the phones are open. I don't actually do anything to open up the phone lines. But even now, we have the Twitters. And on the Twitters, uh, our handle is at WNPR Colin. So you could already start uh, tweeting us uh, the way people do. Uh, And for the duration of the show today, we are very fortunate to have with us Kim Zetter, journalist who writes about cybersecurity and national security, the author of Countdown to Zero Day, Stuxnet and the Launch of the World's First Digital Weapon. Uh, She recently uh, wrote about the crisis of election security for the New York Times Magazine. Uh, You may remember reading that a few weeks ago and going, whoa. It's a little worse than I thought. Um, so, uh, Kim Zetter, first of all, welcome to our conversation. Thank you for having me. So, you know, there are two uh, great philosophical structurers of human thought. One of them is Plato, and the other one is Donald Rumsfeld. And I think we're going <laughs> to begin with Donald Rumsfeld uh, and use him, because this is a situation where we have some known knowns and some known unknowns and some unknown unknowns. And, and I'm not necessarily going to rifle through that entire taxonomy. But let's at least start with our known knowns. There are things that we do know are the case. For example, the way I understand it, we do know that hackers attached to the Russian government have at least sort of skinned and, you know, taken a gander at um, election information, election data, valuable, important um, election uh, statistics and stuff like that. But maybe I don't know too much more than that. So tell us about the known knowns. So the known knowns of what we know from 2016, and by the way, thank you for not bringing Plato into this so that I don't have to recall my college philosophy classes. That's later. Um, No known knowns for 2016. Um, What we know from what the government has told us is that there were probes of um, online internet-facing voter registration systems or election systems or government websites um, in more than uh, 21 different states in the um, uptick to uh, 2016. 
Um, now, when I say probing, all I mean is that you know someone can run and what's we know what we is known as an automated scan, um, and it runs automatically on the internet. Um, you can direct it to specific IP addresses, and it will sort of knock on the door of those websites to find if there are um, vulnerabilities on those websites, and then use those vulnerabilities to get into the website. Um, and so we know that they were probing from IP addresses that have been attributed to um, Russian government hackers. Now, in the case of two of those states, Illinois, they actually got into the system that um, houses the voter registration database and were able to access or see uh, you know, the, the records of a couple hundred thousand or more um, voters. In Arizona, um, they got onto a system that was not the actual voter registration system. It was uh, a state website. Um, and in that case, they didn't get to the voter registration database, but they, they um, uploaded malware to the system, um, indicating that maybe they were would take further steps um, if given more time. So that's all we know. And we know also that um, the same hackers targeted a company in um, Florida that provides voter registration database software uh, to several states. And um, there's conflicting information there. The government says um, that they actually hacked into that system. Uh, the company says that they weren't hacked. Um, but in any case, emails, phishing emails, were sent to election officials who are customers of that company, purporting to come from that company and contained an attachment that had malware um, on it. And as far as we know from reports, no one actually clicked on those emails. So that's what's known. Um, what is stated over and over again by state election officials, by federal election officials and others, is that no votes were changed, um, that the attackers didn't get into voting machines or tabulation machines. And um, initially, the statements were very direct. No votes were changed in the election. And then they've sort of walked back from that and they've said there's no evidence that votes have been changed in those elections, uh, in that election. And I would um, put a caveat on that um, and say, and here's we get into an, uh, an unknown unknown, we don't know if votes actually got changed in 2016. And in fact, no one has actually even really looked for it. Right. And so, I mean, you know, when you think about what you just described, though, you know, we're, and these are, we're pretty confident in saying um, government backed Russian operations. Uh, and they, I mean, if we were hobbits, we would say the eye of Mordor has turned towards us, you know, and they are certainly looking at us, certainly wondering what they can do. Um, I mean, there's just no doubt about that As anymore. Is everyone. Yeah, exactly. As is everyone. Everybody, yes. So, um, so, um, and we have of late, or a little bit more recently, Dan Coates, National uh, Intelligence Director, saying the red light is blinking on the dashboard. He compared it to, to 9-11. You know, it's that alarming. So one might expect, given that the eye of Mordor is actively looking at our election system um, and doing things like putting malware in Arizona and all this other stuff, that we would be at whatever the biggest DEF CON is. Let's just say that's DEF CON 4. Um, but it doesn't seem like we are exactly. I mean, one of the thrusts of your article was that there, there's, I don't know if it's nonchalance, but <laughs> there's something other than high red alert. So... Yeah. Um, so 
We have to start with the statement that election officials don't want you to know that the voting machines are vulnerable. They don't want you to know that election systems are vulnerable because they don't want you to not show up at the polls. They're very concerned that in talking about the ability to hack into these systems, that voters will come to the conclusion, well, there's no reason for me to actually go vote if it's not going to get counted or if it's going to get altered by a hacker. And so they downplay um, the vulnerabilities here. Um, and, you know, I do want to assert that since uh, 2016 and, and, you know, in the weeks leading up to 2016, the Department of Homeland Security has offered aid to states to help them shore up um, some of their systems. But what they're, um, the systems that they're offering falls far short of actually securing um, the voting machines themselves and the machines that are used to tabulate votes. They can only help states with the Internet-facing systems, and those are websites that report the results or websites that host the voter registration databases. The actual core election systems uh, don't get examined by DHS. Um, well, let me just follow up on that. So some people listening would go, well, that's maybe as it should be. Aren't the Internet facing parts of this the parts that you should worry about? Why should you worry about something that's essentially air gapped? So um, I want to uh, first address that issue that machines are air gapped because they're not. Um, I know that this is something that election officials, again, assert over and over again, that the machines are not connected to the Internet. The voting machines themselves, I'm saying. The voting machines are not connected to the Internet, and because they're not connected to the Internet, they can't be hacked. Um, Both of those things are wrong. Um, Let's start with the statement that they're not connected to the Internet, that they're, as you call them, air-gapped. Many states and counties have modems embedded into their voting machines, or they attach a modem to those voting machines at the end of the election. And they do that in order to transmit the results on election night quickly. Um, And they'll do that over the cellular network. That is connectivity. The cellular network goes through the Internet. It goes through routers and switches. Um, And someone can intercept that. um, But that's not the the biggest concern is sort of intercepting votes as they're transmitted on election night because those are unofficial results. The bigger concern there is that when you are connecting to the cellular network, um, an attacker can get in between you Uh, your voting machine and that cellular tower and trick the voting machine into connecting to their malicious device and then use that channel to get back into the voting machine. And they can do the same with the tabulator that is receiving those votes sent on election night. So when election officials tell you that voting machines are not connected to the Internet, that's not true. Secondly, when you say that voting machines aren't connected to the Internet and therefore can't be hacked, that's also not true. A voting machine can be hacked whether or not it's connected to the Internet. And they can do that by, it can happen one of two ways. The voting machines receive uh, memory cards. Um, Prior to each election, election officials will program uh, that machine for uh, the specific election. And they do that by inserting a memory card. And that memory card will then also store the votes at the end of the election. So that memory card is coming from a machine that is programming that memory card. If that machine or anything um, that touches that machine is connected to the Internet, that is a way into the voting machines over the Internet remotely, okay, through that memory card and anything, anything else that connects to those voting machines, such as a USB stick or something else. But there are other ways to get to machines that are not connected to the Internet. Uh, let's say you come in through the um, voting machine vendor that makes the voting machines and produces the software and sends patches for that software to election officials. So that can come, you know, they can do that offline. They can put those patches on a USB stick, they can put them on something else. But again, if that voting machine vendor, if the third party is compromised, then an attacker can compromise the voting machines via that route. 
Right. And so there's um, uh, one of the people in your article, I think, is a, a professor uh, named J. Alex Hald- Halderman. And one of the things that he likes to do is demonstrate. He, he'll sort of hold a mock election about something and then he'll he'll hack it. And the way he does it, I think, is what you just described, right, with a media card or a memory card. It, it's the, the machine is not hooked up to the Internet, but he has a, another way of altering and disguising its behavior. Right. I didn't even I didn't even address the insider attack. So what he's talking about is either a voter coming up to a machine and inserting a rogue memory card into that machine or even, you know, someone in the elections office. Um, so there are, you know, it's not just uh, it's a red herring for us to focus on Russian hackers remotely hacking from Moscow. You know, there are a lot of different actors, um, either remotely or in person physically, who can alter uh, the software on those machines and alter votes. So um, we should um, talk a little bit about uh, how we got into this place. And, and a lot of it comes from 2000. During the 2000 election, uh, we discovered that um, votes were harder to count than we realized, that there were things that had imperiled our confidence in the final results of, uh, of that election. And there was an, uh, an act passed uh, called HAVA, HAVA that, um, that, that set up kind of new standards for voting. So that was that happened 18 years ago. Some of this process unfolded over the course of years. But it might surprise people to know that, for example, even with all these all the new voting machines that were put in, there are states that have strictly digital voting machines, right? Voting machines that do not produce any paper record against which you might check um, the digital results. Right. And um, so most of those states have sort of a patchwork of systems. You know, some counties will have optical scan machines, which has a full-size paper ballot that gets scanned in through a machine. And then some of those counties will have what you're describing as sort of fully electronic machines. They use, let's say, a touchscreen interface, um, but there's no paper ballot. It's all um, in the machine. Uh, the ballot is, is a digital ballot, and the votes are di- entirely digital. Um But there is one state, uh, Georgia, for example, that has those um, paperless machines statewide, and it's continued to use them since 2002, despite attempts by election integrity activists to get them replaced with machines that have some kind of paper trail that can be audited. Um, so, so that's still a big concern, and, and it's it's sort of uh, kind of amazing to election integrity activists who've been fighting this for 18 years uh, to try and get paper trails and paper ballots on machines um, to improve the integrity of an election. And for some reason, Georgia has has um, uh, fought that uh, the entire way. Well, actually, let's hear um, Brian Kemp, who's the Georgia Secretary of State, the Chief Elections Officer, now running for governor, um, and let's hear uh, what he has to say about that. People that know the ways of the past will tell you that paper is the easiest way to to rig an election. So, you know, you have people on all sides of that issue. Uh, so, so are there people on all sides of that issue, uh, Kim? Um, well, there's Kemp on that other side. I, I think that there are some election officials who still insist, like him, that um, fully electronic is th- is the way to go. But I think that, um, you know, he's talking about uh, in the past decades ago where there was um, voter fraud by slipping in um, ballots, by, um, you know, losing ballots, things like that. We have much better ways and much better processes and methods for tracking those paper ballots these days uh, with serial numbers. Um, with the auditing mechanisms, the fact that those paper ballots are also scanned into an optical scan machine and it's an electronic version of that ballot is stored. So you have 
two two items now, right? In the past, where all you had was that paper ballot, um, and if that paper ballot got lost or stolen or new ballots got inserted, um, there wasn't really an auditing trail to know when that happened. Um, with systems like optical scan machines, you have tracking of how many ballots are cast. You have the number of voters that are signing in at the polls. Um, you have all of these mechanisms to to check and double check and make sure. The, the, the caveat there is that you actually have to do an audit after the election. You can't just scan the paper ballots into a machine and then walk away and and uh, uh, count on those digital ballots to be accurate. You actually do have to take that additional step and do a manual paper audit of the of those paper ballots to make sure that they match the digital counts. And, and would you say that we you have to do? I mean, for example, I think one of the things we do here in Connecticut. I should say the Secretary of State was planning to be on today. Something uh, came up; she can't do this. Uh, I think we'll be getting some callers who know quite a bit about this too. But um, my my recollection is that one of the things that the uh, state of Connecticut does is randomly select um, some polling places or some towns or whatever and kind of audit them post election. Is that enough, or are you saying really everything ought to be? Yeah, so I address that in the article. Um, I talk about uh, how most states, so there's only really one state that's doing an audit um, in a a statistically significant way, and that's Colorado. They do what's called a risk-limiting audit. They have sort of pioneered that um, last year. And what it does is, so what you're talking about now is there are many states that will that will have like a, a mandatory audit law, but that audit only kicks in, let's say, if the margin of victory is really narrow. So let's say 1% or less, then they might do a manual, then they might do an audit of those ballots. But of course, if you want to rig an election, you're going to make sure that that margin of difference is wide so that that um, automatic uh, audit doesn't kick in. Now, when states do do audits, um, and they can do them either for a wider or narrow margin, margins, what they'll often do is they will take a percentage of randomly chosen precincts, so ballots at, at, uh, at randomly chosen precincts. And quite often that's between 1% and 5% of precincts. The problem with that is if you're selecting specific precincts that you're going to audit, if the software has, has gone faulty in a different precinct, if it's been hacked or if it's got a bug in it in a different precinct that isn't chosen in that audit, you're never going to know. So what you really want to do with the risk-limiting audit is that you choose a sampling of ballots across all precincts, and the percentage of the ballots that you actually manually audit um, is determined by uh, the closeness of the race. Uh, the closer the race, you might you might be counting um, more or less, depending. It's all been worked out specifically uh, by uh, mathematicians. So so even though uh, Connecticut has this um, random audit uh, law, it's actually not a sufficient law to catch um, hacked software. We're talking to Kim Zetter uh, right now, a journalist who uh, writes about cybersecurity and national security. Uh, and she recently wrote about the crisis of election security for The New York Times uh, magazine. Um, we had a question on Twitter that I think a lot of people might be wondering, uh, and I believe it actually comes, is the handle regular person or is that just, yes. So regular person, I like that handle, tweets, um, and is tweeting also not just at us, but also at Senators Murphy and Blumenthal. Why no national investigation of whether votes were changed? I think that's a pretty good question. I mean, you know, it, we are, we know from the beginning of our conversation, Kim, that we were probed, we were scanned, blah, blah, blah. Um, you'd think, once again, that that would be a reason to really do a deep investigation as to whether votes were changed. How much investigating, to your knowledge, was ever done? None. 
Mm-hmm. So, th- so there's a there's a uh, a problem here if you're talking about federal government. The federal government can't just come in and examine voting machines. First of all, elections are run by state and local officials. So, um, federal officials come in at the invitation of local officials. Um, the, the assistance that I said DHS is doing with states is done only on the invitation of states that will invite them in. And states and counties set the parameters for what DHS can actually do. Um, aside from that, when we have problems in elections and people have tried to examine the software uh, to determine whether or not it had been hacked or whether or not it had a bug in it that, that caused uh, ballots to not be recorded or not be recorded properly, the voting machine vendors, uh, these are proprietary systems, proprietary software, the voting machine vendors will go to court to fight this. And they succeed in this because it is proprietary software and they throw you know trade secrets arguments out there and judges are afraid of trade secret arguments. And so they will cave into that and they will say, no, you cannot look at the software. So we have we have a couple of problems here. We have um, the fact that um, that, you know, the software that is used it as the core of our democracy is not visible to the public. We can't see it. There's no transparency there. So we have that problem. And we also have the problem with um, quite often election officials, and I'll say also the public, wants to move on after an election. Mm-hmm. Anytime that there are questions of results, um, you know, and especially now with our presidential elections, the campaigning uh period is so long, two years long, we're fed up, right, by the time that we actually go to the polls on election day. And we just want the results and we want to move on. And this happened with Gore, right, in mm-hmm. 2000, where he tried uh, to get manual um, uh, counts in Florida. Um, uh, Republican officials went to court to fight them. Uh, the states agreed, or sorry, the, the Supreme Court agreed and halted the, the counts, and he wasn't able to do what he needed to do. Um, uh, you know, uh, uh, John Kerry uh, was presidential candidate in 2004. He discussed recently last month in a radio interview uh, where he and his team tried to examine the algorithms that were tabulating the votes in that election. Um, and they were told by a court that they couldn't because it's proprietary software. So we have so we have two problems here. We have one that we're, we can't get access to that software, which actually we should own as taxpayers. We pay for those voting machines, but the voting machine vendors say you only lease that software. You don't own it. And the second thing is that election officials want to move on. They don't want the recounts themselves. Though if you wanted kind of a model for America's misplaced priorities, that's a pretty good one that you'd think something like the integrity of our voting system would be about as baseline an American value uh, as we could think of. And the notion that it's trumped by businesses' concerns with proprietary software is, you know, (laughs) that does seem that should bother people. It should bother people that that our election system and the the sanctity and integrity of it doesn't come first. Let me just ask you about one more thing. Thing. And then we got to go to break. And then when we come back from break, uh, I will take some calls here. 860-275-7266 is the number. 860-275-7266. Now, we've mostly, Kim, been talking about the machines on which votes are cast and tabulated. We haven't so much talked about voter rolls, uh, the records of, uh, although we do know that that in the case of Illinois, that's one of the, that's the thing that got hacked. So we haven't talked that much generally about uh, the lists of voters, about who gets to vote. Uh, can you say a little bit more about what we know about that in terms of its vulnerabilities? So, um, 
the Help America Vote Act actually uh, sort of aided in the vulnerability of voter registration databases. So um, after the 2000 debacle in Florida, uh, as you pointed out, Congress passed the Help America Vote Act that gave states about $3.9 billion to um, improve their election processes, to upgrade voting machines. But it also mandated that states consolidate all of their voter registration databases in the counties into one single statewide database. So prior to that, you know, each county would have its own database. Um, and if you moved, then those records got transferred to another county or you re-registered in another county. And Republicans felt like this was sort of an open door to election fraud if you could register in multiple counties or in multiple states. Um, and that's why they wanted these statewide databases that could be easily um, uh, updated with death re- records and felony records and purged um, and to catch double um, re- um, registrations. So what, what that does, though, is that Help America Vote Act didn't designate how states should secure those databases. And so states were pretty much left on their own to either secure them or not secure them, um, whatever. And um, so we have systems that are uh, open to probing. And because they are Internet-facing, that makes them vulnerable um, just on the face of it because they are Internet-facing. Um, but added to that, the fact that the software isn't patched, it's not kept up to date, um, it's not configured correctly, then that creates other vulnerabilities. So what could someone do? Briefly, because I know that you want to go to a break. Um, someone could get into the voter roll and delete records um, or alter records in a way that would make it difficult for someone to vote on Election Day or change their polling place so that they are running around from polling place to polling place in the morning trying to find um, the place that they're actually supposed to cast a ballot. All of those things can contribute to disenfranchising voters. All right. So we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back with more of Kim. There's a whole bunch of other things I want to ask her about. If you've got your own questions or things you want to bring up, uh, the number is 860-275-7266. You may also tweet us uh, at WNPR Colin. Have no cutches at all, no pangs of remorse, because the best man always wins, and he's my man, of course. Take a few votes from Peter and give them to Paul. The fraud is invisible and victory margin quite small. Don't call me criminal or dastardly liar. All elections you know come right down to the wire. Before we get back to Kim, let me just uh, give you kind of a sense of what's happening this week. Um, tomorrow, two things tomorrow. And I think you can still register for, for this. And, and it's not completely disconnected from the conversation we're having right now. I'm going to be teaching, uh, I'm going to be giving three lectures at the University of Hartford as part of the President's College Program. Uh, and it's sort of about the birth and death and hope for resurrection of objective truth. Uh, we're going to look at ways in which our understanding of uh, what is true uh, may result a little bit from overconfidence uh, on our part, but also from tremendous challenges right now. Um, I wish I could explain it more coherently than that. I hope I can when the lecture comes. But I think you can still register. I think there may be some openings because it's it's in a you know good size lecture hall. So it's the President's College. That's what it's called at the University of Hartford. So just Google that and find it. And you could probably find my course and maybe take it. Uh, also, tomorrow we are going to be airing. You may have heard us talking about this. Uh, I, I put together a forum at Watkinson School a few weeks ago where I brought together three people who specialize in facilitating better conversations. And this included uh, somebody from an organization that goes into troubled communities, places where there have been uh, 
police shootings and stuff like that and kind of gets both sides talking. Uh, somebody from a, a really interesting project called uh, Humility and Conviction in Public Life uh, at UConn. And I actually brought in somebody who's a marriage counselor because I want to talk about our inability politically to have civil conversations, uh, the uh, rapidity with which we reach for the flamethrower. Anyway, that uh, a distillation of that conversation will be tomorrow's show. Uh, and well, I can tell you the rest of it later. That's that's tomorrow. That covers tomorrow. Let's get back to the conversation we're having right now with Kim Zetter, a journalist who writes about cybersecurity and national security. She's the author of Countdown to Zero Day, Stuxnet, and the launch of the world's first digital weapon. Uh, she recently wrote about the crisis of election security. That was the name of the uh, article for the New York Times Magazine. I encourage you to dig this out uh, after we're done because there's stuff we won't have time to get into. Um, Kim, uh, all the way through this conversation, I keep saying Russia, Russia, Russia. But, you know, Russia is another one of those sort of known knowns. We do know that Russia uh, probed and scanned and and did certain stuff. But there's no reason, I suppose, to limit our suspicions to Russia. Uh, Russia, I would imagine some of the concerns that you're raising about cybersecurity in in our election process would apply to domestic uh, malfeasors uh, and, and people from other countries. Right. I, I think that that's um, one of the things that has um, sort of annoyed election integrity activists, um, that it's taken the Russians to actually get focus on this. Um, but the Russians aren't the problem. I mean, they are one of the problems. Um, and the 2016 election isn't the problem. It's one of the problems. We have 18 years, as you pointed out, of these machines being used and very little focus on the security of them. And so it was, it's not just that they were vulnerable in 2016. They've been vulnerable for the last 18 years. Um, and they're vulnerable, you know, like I said, to both insiders and outsiders. So anyone who wanted to, uh, who, let's say, disagreed with U.S. foreign policy and wanted to try and uh, influence the outcome of an election at the federal level or even local elections, state-run elections, uh, city, county-wide elections, um, the systems are vulnerable. And they're vulnerable to outsiders. They're vulnerable to hacked. They're vulnerable to terrorists who can hire hackers to work for them. Um, They're vulnerable to rogue insiders who want to throw and control an election. All right. So um, we may come back to some of that, but uh, there are some people calling in. The number, again, 860-275-7266. You may tweet us at WNPR. Colin, uh, let's go to the phones here. Luther from Glastonbury has been waiting since essentially the beginning of the show. Hi, Luther. You're on the air. Hi. So I'm executive director of the Connecticut Citizen Election Audit, and we organize voters around the state to observe and independently report on our post-election audits. But what I'd like to mention is uh, paper ballots are critical to recovering from cyber attacks on our elections. But in Connecticut, they're insufficiently protected. In Connecticut, they're sealed with flimsy plastic seals that can be easily compromised by amateurs, and in most towns, storage can be accessed with a single key by single individuals undetected for hours. And in other states, it takes at least two individuals with two unique keys, and often ballots are held in guarded facilities under video surveillance. So, you know, just protecting uh, from cyber things, and Connecticut does a pretty good job when it comes to our voter registration database. Uh, But when it comes to the audits and when it comes to protecting paper ballots, 
uh, there's a lot that uh, we could do. Luther, let me ask you a follow-up question, and then I want Kim to comment on what you just said. So what would your concern be? In other words, um, when I are you worried that the, the paper ballots would be switched out for ones that don't scan? They look the same, but they don't scan the same way? Uh, well, you could. first of all, the scanners could be rigged to have incorrect results, or that the incorrect results could be forwarded uh, onto the Secretary of State's election night reporting system. Mm-hmm. And then afterwards, uh, officials could go in and make the ballots match uh, what they reported on election night. Or even more critically, when we have a re-canvas, which in other states is called a recount, um, they could go in and just manipulate a small number of ballots uh, so it looked like the voter didn't quite fill out the ballot right, and the result was slightly different, uh, causing a change in the in the winner. So a lot of times we talk about we're safe in Connecticut because we can always look at the paper ballots. Well, we can't. We can't, but officials can. Uh, but there's uh, no real safe protection that those paper ballots were actually uh, the same ones that were voted on uh, by the public. Okay, so Kim. I mean, I think one thing that we can agree here is that, and reading your article, it's clear that, you know, a, a system is only as strong as whatever its weakest link is. Um, Luther's talking about paper ballots, which uh, I think most of us would identify as a strength of most systems. I don't know. How big a worry is that to you? Yeah, I, no, I think that he's right to bring this up in, in Connecticut. I, you know, it, it varies from state to state and from county to county how they do it. And of course, um, when I talked about, you know, in responding to Kemp's statements that people can manipulate the paper ballots, of course they can if you're not securing the paper ballots, just like they can manipulate the voting machines if you're not securing the voting machines. Um, so the argument that, you know, you can manipulate paper ballots if they're not secure um, is the same argument for the voting machines. And what should we, we should be saying is, is what Luther is saying is, okay, we have that paper ballot. You know, Connecticut has taken this extra step to tell voters, um, we care about your vote, so we're going to have this paper, but we're not actually going to do very much to secure them. And and so I think that the, they have to go hand in hand. I would uh, point out something else that he sort of touched on, but he didn't really sort of um, uh, fine point it. And that is that um, if you have an audit, uh, what you call a recanvassing in uh, Connecticut, and all you do is run those paper ballots back through a scanner a second time, and that's what you're calling an audit, so that you get two digital results, and you look at the two digital results, and you say, oh, they match, so it, everything's okay. That's a problem, as Luther is pointing out. If the software is a problem, it's going to be a problem the first time you scan those those ballots, and it's going to be a problem the second time you scan those ballots. That's why the audit has to be, uh, mandated by law, has to be a manual audit of the paper ballot. So someone actually looking visually at those paper ballots and then comparing against the digital uh, tally. And, and if we're not making this clear, um, I mean, there's a lot of things you know, like you, you might be listening, wondering, well, why does that matter? And some of this kind of goes on at an almost kind of spooky Star Trek level. I mean, uh, Kim, one thing that can could conceivably happen is that you could get um, uh, you could put some kind of virus or malware or something uh, into a voting machine. So let's say that they only counted, you know, half of the ballots of well, half of the votes of one of the candidates. They wouldn't do it that baldly. They would do it a little bit more nuanced, but uh, just, you know, for discussion purposes. And then the program that had been inserted into the election machine would be capable of erasing all traces of itself, right? Right. 
Right. And so when you asked me whether or not anyone had looked for evidence that voted, votes had been changed, I said sort of flippantly that, you know, no, no one had actually looked. But there is that other alternative. You know, if people actually did look, if people actually did get their hands on their software, there's no guarantee that they would actually see signs of hacking because a really skilled um, hacker is going to erase their tracks. And uh, uh, yeah, I'll leave it at that. Um, we're going to take another break fairly soon, but um, let's talk about the concern that election officials and elected election officials uh, often say that they have. And, and that is that, you know, from the point of view of, let's say, Vladimir Putin, the conversation that we're having now is kind of a victory. That Vladimir Putin, I mean, he eventually, from what our uh, intelligence services now say, and what the July Mueller indictments seem to indicate, he eventually picked a winner. He wanted a he wanted Hillary Clinton not to win, and he wanted Trump to win. But you know, his his apparent goal long term, and before he even picked a winner, was to undermine confidence in democracy. That he wanted the United States to have um, less faith in itself and more heated arguments uh, and all the kinds of things that we are actually rewarding him by having. But you know, some some might look at the conversation you and I are having and say, "Well, isn't this kind of a win for Putin if we're talking about?" our election system in a way that does undermine confidence in it. What's your response to that? I, I would say that it's it's not talking that has undermined the confidence. It is the the vulnerable machines that have undermined confidence. If our machines were protected, if they were secured, if we had audits that would catch uh, things that go wrong with machines, if we had open source software that people could actually examine, uh, the things that Putin does wouldn't be a problem. We would have uh, confidence in our elections. We can have confidence in our elections if we take the steps that 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 we need to take uh, to secure the integrity of both the machines and the outcomes of the elections. All right. So we'll take one last break here. I want to give you more time to call in. A few people have called in here. 860-275-7266. You may tweet uh, at us at WNPR Colin. Do you want to point out the machines never counted any of the votes for John Connor in any of those Terminator movies? You know why? Because the machines don't want John Connor to win. All right. We're going to come back. I watch too many movies, clearly. I need to be more attached to reality. But we'll come back and we'll uh, complete this conversation. That lose is not my problem. Please pass me some booze. Let's all celebrate that I choose who prevails. If I didn't do that, then our government fails. Today's show was produced by Oleg Smirnov and Natasha Gorski. Hey, that's not right. The Russians have hacked our credits. Betsy Chekhov and I produced this show. That still doesn't sound really right. We had help from Amanda Fishke. The part of Bill Curry was played by Ivan Drago. On tomorrow's show, the search for a civil way to disagree. And now, back to calling. So I'm just going to bring you up to date on some other stuff uh, from this week. I would have done it before, but I couldn't remember all of it. Um, okay, so one important thing is that on Friday, we're moving our cultural roundtable, The Nose, uh, always held at 1 o'clock, uh, down to the lobby of The Study, which is a beautiful hotel in New Haven, where we've done other broadcasts in the past. Uh, we're, going to just, we're going to talk, I know, about uh, the first, about first Man, the new uh, Neil Armstrong movie. I don't know what else we're talking about. But we have a great panel. 
including Mark Oppenheimer, very difficult to get Mark Oppenheimer, uh, and uh, Lucy Gelman and Sean Murray, who are no slouches themselves. Uh, and we'd love for you to just come and hang out with us in the in the lobby of the study uh, while we do that show. It's always fun to have an audience there. Um, on Wednesday, we're doing a show about opera uh, and about things that are being done to save opera and make it, you know, maybe a little bit more hip, a little bit more relevant. Uh, also, all kinds of other stuff about opera. And um, on Thursday, our show is just blown up. So we're going to do some other kind of different show. And the only reason I'm telling you that is some of the best shows that we've ever done, particularly recently, have been in weeks where one of the shows that we had planned kind of blew up and we had to improvise. So that's like sort of, I don't know, it's, it's sort of like a chef's salad or something. I can't really tell you exactly what's in it, but um, I'm kind of thinking maybe something uh, good. You know, either that or something really terrible, and that's the other possibility. All right, so we're talking to Kim Zetter, a journalist who writes about cybersecurity and national security. She's the author of Countdown to Zero Day, Stuxnet, and the launch uh, of the world's first digital weapon. And she recently wrote about the crisis of election security for the New York Times magazine. So, Kim, in that article, one of the things that you uh, wrote about and you've alluded to it uh, so far uh, in our conversation is the incredible power of these this small group of, I guess it's three companies now that actually make voting machines. Uh, and one of the things that they uh, do, obviously, I mean, like anybody else, they don't want to just sell 350,000 voting machines or how many of them there are and then just get out of the business. So I assume they're making new models. Are, are they making, are there new voting machines that will be coming onto the market, so to speak? Uh, so all of the voting machines that are on the market today um, are uh, what I would call old voting machines. And I, I mean that um, because they've all been tested and certified to standards that were created back all the way back in 2005. Think about that. More than a decade ago, um, we are using voting machines that were uh, tested and built to a specification of computing um, more than uh, a decade ago. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm guessing that you probably changed your machine and you upgrade it, maybe your laptop, your desktop machine, let's say two to, two to five years, every two to five years. Um, so the machines that we're using at the core of our democracy are more than a decade old, the ones that are uh, currently being used. And even if states were given money to buy new machines, the new machines that they would buy uh, would still be um, built uh, toward a standard that's 10 years old. Um, so that seems weird, too, so <laughs> that, that we wouldn't, I mean, that the standards for the new machines wouldn't reflect what we've learned so far. But is that just sort of the built-in weirdness of this process? Um, well, it's it, well, it takes a long time to to build new equipment, right? Mm -hmm. And so the standards also take a long time to develop. So the those standards were developed in two thousand and five, and and um, voting machine vendors were given two years, sort of a window of two years, to actually build machines that would meet those standards. So the standards went into effect in two thousand and seven. Um, the um, government or the Election Assistance Commission, along with the committee, is currently um, completing new standards, but those won't be done before. For uh, the 2020, and certainly machines won't be tested and certified um, by then to these new standards. So each subsequent version of the standards has improved security slightly, um, but none of them have really gotten it fully right. Um, and so even this next uh, round of standards will have problems with them. Um, it seemed uh, I recall that recently uh, a huge pot of well not a huge pot a large pot of money was approved by Congress I think it might have been three hundred and eighty million dollars I know Connecticut got five point one million dollars and it was kind of like here here's some money the elections are coming go fix your systems go fix go make them better or harden them off um, 
was was it was each state just sort of allowed to figure out what it needed to do with this money that they got? Yeah, so this is leftover money from HAVA. So this isn't sort of Congress coming up with new money. Um, this is part of the $3.9 billion that HAVA designated to states back in 2002, but Congress didn't appropriate all of it. So we had this pocket of money that was sort of held back. And out and in post-2016, everyone is saying, well, we need new machines, we need new security, whatever. And so Congress says, oh, we have this money in our pocket that we forgot to give you. Here, here it is now. Um, the problem with that is it's not, it's not uh, you know, calculated with any thought, right? So it's just like, here's the remainder, divvy it up among yourselves and figure out what to do with it. And so um, it's not enough for states to um, secure, uh, fully secure or buy new, new machines. So what they're doing um, in many cases are they're hiring um, professional security professionals to help them uh, secure the configuration. They're hiring new staff, IT staff, so that they have someone full time. You know, in many of these counties, um, they haven't had budget to have a full time IT person on staff. Um, that should be concerning in itself that, you know, election officials don't understand the voting machines. Um, they're, they're, you know, uh, sophisticated computers. And they have relied for many years on the voting machine vendors to both program the machines, to troubleshoot them, uh, to help them do recounts, to even help them tabulate. Um, and so some of this money will be used wisely by counties, hopefully, to hire their own internal staff. All right. Let me grab a, a call or two before we run out of time here. Uh, here's a Stephen in Hartford. Hi, Stephen. Hi. How are you, Colin? Okay. Um, I just want to um, ask your, your audience and, and yourself and your guests, um, maybe we should go back to term limits, because it seems like when there's a senator or anybody out there that, you know, has no career goal to the next step, we'll make the right decisions for us. Um I think it all boils down, I believe I've seen it time and time again, and uh, for term limits for, you know, our Senate and our Congress needs to be put in place. All right. Well, let me, let me, I don't really see a 100% perfect connection between these two issues, and I, I would point out that uh, you can look at Jeff Flake recently, and yeah, he, he delayed the vote and called for the investigation, and then voted to confirm Kavanaugh. So how you, however you feel about that, maybe that's an example of somebody who's self-term limited. But but maybe a better way to ask this question of you, Kim Zetter, is, um, you know, it does seem as though the political system is only minimally responsive to something that could be regarded as a potential national emergency. Is that because... Uh, as you said earlier in our conversation, people, just the regular people, they like elections to be over. They like there not to be lingering questions, that there isn't a political upside to worrying about this more. I think that uh, federal lawmakers in general don't have the long view in mind, right? They want quick solutions. Um, they don't necessarily want to weigh things um, before they pass legislation. Um, when HAVA came up, uh, you know, this was um, proffered by um, Steny Hoyer from Massachusetts and then Bob Ney from Ohio. Um, and Steny Hoyer wanted to pass HAVA because he wanted to get rid of those, those um, punch guard machines. And there were experts who testified during hearings around HAVA back in 2002 about the security problems with these machines. They warned them, um, don't give states money right now because we don't have secure machines that they'll purchase with. Um, and we also don't have secure standards. Uh, one expert said, wait until we can actually write new standards that are secure and we can get secure machines and then give states money. And they were ignored. Um, not only were they ignored, HAVA had sort of built-in deadlines into it that, that sort of uh, pushed states to purchase machines quickly before the standards, new standards could be created. 
create it. So I think that um, one of the problems with election officials, you know, the term limit is, is sort of beyond my my capability to respond in this context. Um, but one of the problems is, is that election officials um, either don't have um, good access to technical advisors who can give them the information that they need to, or they ignore um, good advice when they get it um, for the expedient um, political decision of, of, you know, passing a bill quickly, um, getting it off the, the table and moving on. Um, and that's why we got these machines, and that's why we still have these machines. So um, I'm going to—this is probably going to be the last question, but I'm giving you a room to answer if you need it. Um, uh, let's say I do this occasionally, that I hand you a magic wand and say, Kim Zetter, you make the changes. You know a lot about this. You know what the weaknesses are. Uh, you make the changes. Uh, I'll get the law passed. I'll, I'll get you, if not an unlimited budget, uh, quite a bit of money to throw at this problem. What do, you wind, what, what do we wind up doing as a result of this tremendous— this power I've invested in you. Oh, wow. Um, well, we have legislation, we have bills that have been introduced that would mandate, may require all states, counties to have um, paper ballots uh, with their electronic machines, and that would require mandatory um, manual audits. So those are the first two things. I mean, those are the main things. Forget about Putin, forget about any what anyone wants to do the elections. If you have those two things, paper ballots, and you have sufficient, uh, statistically significant audits, um, then you can be reasonably assured of the integrity of the outcome. However, you can't just mandate those things to states. You actually have to give them money because it's going to cost more money for them to have these paper ballots, to store them for 22 months, as federal law requires, and to have the personnel to do audits properly. All right. I, I just I do want to say that I think one of the ironies of all this is that uh, we're going to have arguments at the end of this midterm election cycle about stuff that happened. And, you know, we talked about Georgia and the fact that the, their machines don't have any kind of paper records. Uh, there's going to be other stuff going on in Georgia that has to do with old fashioned kinds of voter suppression techniques and stuff like that. Uh, and, and a lot of questions probably nationwide about whether people get to vote. And the Voting Rights Act, of course, has been crippled by the U.S. Supreme Court. And there's all these ways in which in kind of an analog sense, we worry about our system. It's, it is uh, tragic to pile on top of this, the fact that we really haven't dealt technologically uh, with some of these cybersecurity issues. Well, anyway, Kim Zetter, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. All right. So we are going to say a farewell, but I'll say a protracted farewell because I've got an extra minute here. I want to thank uh, Betsy Kaplan for pulling this show together. Uh, thanks for calling in. And if you uh, enjoyed this show or you have further questions, you can email me at Colin at WNPR.org, Colin at WNPR.org. Don't forget, I'm giving a series of lectures, President's College, University of Hartford. I'm hoping registration is not closed out. I probably should have checked on that. Tomorrow, we do have this Watkinson show. I think you'll find this a very interesting conversation. It's just about how we can talk better, how we can get into those areas where we're likely to get into arguments and just use better techniques. So, and this is a very interesting panel. Uh, all three of them come from very diverse backgrounds. I think you'll get a lot out of that. And don't forget also, we're down at the nose in New Haven. And we're, not, we're down at the nose. The nose is down in New Haven at the study in the lobby of the study hotel, which is on Chapel Street uh, in New Haven. At 1 p.m. on Friday, we'd love to have you drop by and watch us uh, not just record a show, but do a live broadcast of a show from a hotel lobby because 
That's the kind of reckless, impetuous people we are. We're talking about opera. Well, we have Nadine Sierra as part of our opera show, and she is a, I mean, she's an opera goddess at this point. She's an amazing, amazing opera singer. She will be one of our guests. Heidi, Heidi Whaleson, a longtime uh, opera critic, will also be a, a guest on that show. We got all kinds of fun stuff for you. So thanks for tuning in today, and stay with us the rest of the week. <laughs>